This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Jordy. Now this week we're not going to get bogged down in the detail of what's happening in Westminster. Brexit rumbles on and Theresa May is coming to a street near you to bore you into submission. But one of the things which I've noticed in the last few weeks is a sort of growing sense of the public saying, why can't Westminster just sort this out? And more than that, why is Westminster so crap at the moment? Why are our politicians not up to the job in front of them? So we're going to try and unpick who it is that becomes a politician, why they do that in the first place, how they go about it, and then the problems that they face once they're inside that Westminster bubble. Joining me this week, Isabel Harmon, assistant editor of The Spectator and the author of the book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Sam Alvis is a former intern and researcher for an MP in Parliament. And Rob Wilson was an MP and government minister until he lost his seat in the general election in 2017. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. We begin with Isabel Harbour. We don't get the politicians we want. That's partly because we want so many different and contradictory things from them that are impossible to fulfil. But neither do we get the politicians we deserve, and that's not our fault. It's the way the system for getting into politics and Parliament itself make it near impossible for good people to serve our country properly. So this is quite a big question, Isabel, and one that you obviously considered a lot when you were writing your book. What is it that you think is wrong with the current system? It starts when people are actually trying to get into politics. Normal people are completely, almost completely excluded from the parliamentary candidacy process because it is so expensive to stand for parliament. It is the longest and most expensive job interview on earth, I think, and there's no guarantee that you'll get the job at the end of it. So the parties obviously spend money on campaign literature. This is all official regulated spend by the Electoral Commission. But what's less well known is how much money individual candidates spend of their own personal money. So they obviously have to give up their job for two years, or perhaps that's not obvious, perhaps that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. So they lose a great deal of money in terms of earnings. They might have to move to the constituency, so there's the cost of moving, the cost of renting there. Even if they're local to that constituency, they still have to travel around it a lot. They'll have to go to different events. One of the expenses that I just had not thought of until I spoke to a lot of candidates was that 
when you're campaigning, you naturally go to a lot of local events, which are charity fundraisers. And you cannot turn up at the breast cancer fundraising event in the evening and say, I'm really sorry, but this morning I gave £25 to bowel cancer and I've run out of money. (laughs) You just keep giving money because you're the candidate. You don't want to seem like a Scrooge. And you're naturally you want to support these causes most of the time. And uh, you want to give a good impression. So the average cost of standing, I found from a survey that I carried out of over 500 candidates in 2015, is £11,000. That's the personal cost. And when you move on to marginal seats where the candidate might or might not win, the spending gets much higher. So an example for Conservatives who won their marginal seats in 2015, the average cost, personal cost, was £121,000. Wow. Uh, for Labour candidates who lost their seats, who didn't win their battle, it was around £35,000. So for the party of working people, that's still quite a lot, of, a money. lot of money. <laughs> Rob, Rob, you're nodding along to yeah, all of that. I mean, Isabel's absolutely right. When people go into a marginal seat, it costs an awful lot of money for the candidate themselves for all the reasons she's outlined. I fought two marginal seats... And they were very expensive. I don't think it cost me £121,000, but it certainly cost me £20,000 each time I stood. And it's an annual fee, really. So it was 20000 a year. So if you have a very long candidacy, like many people do these days... Because there's a tendency to parties now... Yeah, select early. Select early, then the candidate gets well as well known as a new yeah, MP. So, I mean, over a four or five year period, you could very, very easily spend 20000 a year trying to win that seat from a personal basis in terms of, you know, staying in the seat if you don't live there, Um, you know, paying for all these events, paying for dinners, paying for charity events, and and it just goes on and on. It is like a bottomless pit, and you could keep going and going and going. And I know a number of candidates from the Conservative Party who have almost bankrupt themselves on the back of it. Wow. And so as a result, the point you were making, Isabel, is that... They're the people who even bother going down that road. There were loads of other people who just think, I'd like to do my bit, you know, I'd like to serve the country or whatever, but there's no way I can't lay my hands on £20,000 a year. Or Absolutely. I mean, we might not feel sorry for those who had £121,000 <laughs> to spend on their campaign. I should say, I think that... that- particular figure was slightly skewed by the fact there were a few ex-barristers in that group so the loss of earnings the loss of was, 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 yeah. was, was significant. one candidate spent £550,000 wow. um, and he was an ex-barrister and he bought a house in the constituency, that explains we shouldn't feel sorry so much for them as for the people who would still make great politicians but just can't afford yeah. to do this and I don't think your ability to pay your way into Parliament really says anything about your ability to be a legislator. It just means that you're rich, basically. And what about the knock-on effect for the sort of people that then do become... Are they all barristers or people who've had well-paid... Because, I mean, part of the criticism is that a lot of MPs haven't had previous lives, but you need to have, by the sound of it, have earned decent enough money to have... Yeah, well... Climbed on that ladder. It makes a difference if you're in the political bubble already, then the loss of earnings and the risk... A sort of minimised slightly because you can quit your job if you work for Conservative campaign headquarters, for instance, and expect to come back yeah. having lost your election fight because it's almost a sort of CV building thing. Whereas if you did that when you were a teacher, I think quite a few 
head teachers looking to employ you would think, well, are they going to disappear off again? The and next actually, general election yeah, comes around. And, yeah. Do they really care about teaching so much? Are you really committed to this career or are you secretly just yearning to be an MP? So we do get a, a narrower group of politicians and we do have people with interesting backstories. You and I always talk about this, don't we, Matt, as journalists? So-and-so has got an interesting yeah. backstory. And there are people like you know Sajid Javid, for instance, who grew up in poverty, but there is normally a middle story that involves them breaking out of poverty very admirably and earning yeah. a lot of money. And we should congratulate those politicians, but we don't get many people coming straight from working class occupations or backgrounds, and that's a shame. Everybody's got a dad who was a bus driver. There aren't many people who are bus drivers themselves. Quite, that's the, that's quite. The, that's the difference. Sam, what do you make of this, having been sort of within the parliamentary system and seen the sort of people and, and the cost, of basically, of being a politician? Yeah, I think the, the use of the word normal is really interesting because anyone who's willing to sit through hundreds of local association or constituency Labour Party <laughs> meetings before they become a candidate is not normal in the first place. But I think you're right, you miss out on this middle ground of people. You either have people who've got enough money when they're young um, for various means to run, or you have people who've made money over the course of their lifetime and then decide, maybe I should try being an MP now. But it's the people from the more normal backgrounds in the middle that just get lost. Yeah, totally. But it is also true that a number of uh, eventual politicians go through a system that uh, they're paid for by the party in somewhere or other, like at Conservative Central Office or the Labour Party mm. HQ or by some policy institute or a whole range of other things and that funds their candidacy mm. so there is a there is a way of people who are less well paid yeah. of making it into politics. You don't want to be the other end, like the American example where you spend all of your time raising money from individual and personal donors, right? So what's the other option? And, and so what does that mean then about the makeup of, of Parliament and the ability of, because if part of the criticism at the moment people are looking at Westminster and saying God's sake, can't somebody sort this out? What does that... Because it, it, actually it's striking that our, despite the sort of previous rush to youth, our current leadership are, both Tory and Labour, are older and have been in Parliament for a long time. Yes, and that's not a bad thing because it means, well, it certainly means they, they know their way around Parliament and in Theresa May's case they understand how government works as well, which is really important. And that's why we shouldn't malign ex-special advisers going into politics either it'd be better if it wasn't so easy for a special advisor to go in compared to an, a normal person <laughs> but special special advisors do bring a wealth of experience about how government works so but we, we get a narrow group of people there's a term that Ivor crew and anthony king use in their brilliant book the blunders of our governments which is cognitive disconnect where you get a group of people who are all from roughly similar backgrounds and currently living in the same way and they don't instinctively notice the problems with the policy. And the most famous policy that they cite is the poll tax, where it was drawn up in a, a small room of, of politicians and civil servants, all of whom were from the same backgrounds. And a little later down the process, one civil servant said, try collecting that in Brixton. And everyone thought, well, for, you know, you can sell a painting or something like that. And it turned out <laughs> it was going to be quite hard to collect it in Brixton, which is why... And anywhere else never, for that Anywhere else yeah. for that matter. You saw this more recently with George Osborne when he was drawing up his omni-shambles budget. He thought it would be a great idea to basically tax everything that sun readers enjoy all at once and uh, that, that, that no one would notice, you know, pasties, grannies, caravans, all those sorts of things. And uh, that backfired politically on him, but at the time he hadn't realised because he was surrounded by people who were like him. There is an, another dimension to this because we're talking as if everybody wants to go into politics, yeah. and that is certainly not true anymore. <laughs> at one stage it might have been an ambition for an awful lot of people, but I think that is receding very gradually, and it's receding because the attractiveness of politics mm. is not there anymore. 
from day one your life is is examined in forensic detail by all sorts of people who want to catch you out about yeah. something you may have done in your past or or something you've uh, said or something you've put on social media um, and that is a real concern for people. Well, you're absolutely right, Bob. Let's um, wind the clock back even further, then, because for a lot of people, the chance to get into politics is to work in Parliament, maybe as a researcher or an intern, which is exactly what Sam did. This is Sam Alvis. The expenses scandal changed how MPs manage their finances, but successive bullying reports and an independent commission haven't changed how they manage their staff. Unpaid or untrained, with an MP as your manager, no one should want to work in politics, but there's a queue of overqualified, eager, expendable young people who do. Explain your story. What happened with you? Where were you working? What were you doing? So I had done my degree, I'd done a master's, and I decided that having looked at climate change and things like that, I wanted to get more involved in the policy process. Uh, I'd done some work for Labour for the 2015 general election. I thought, great, let's work in Parliament. Um, I couldn't see any other way in. I didn't know anyone who worked in Parliament, so I applied for an unpaid internship. I did that for uh, just shy of a couple of months and then moved on to a paid internship doing exactly the same thing um, before becoming a researcher and then continuing politics and public affairs. What does a paid internship involve? <laughs> so, I mean, be distinct from being an actual paid job. Uh, not much difference to an unpaid internship, I'll be honest. So there's sort of a variety of tasks that I used to do. Tidying the office might be one, uh, all those exciting things, uh, managing filing cabinets, but then a lot of it's dealing with constituents, incoming phone calls, policy issues. So I worked in the Westminster office, so most of my role was on managing the Westminster diary, what debates are coming up and um, things like that. And what did you get paid for doing that? Not a lot. I'm trying to remember. It was um, it was enough for HMRC to refund me my entire year's tax when I'd finished. <laughs> it's a wage. It's not just expenses. You get something, but yes, not very exactly. Much. And when I was unpaid, I got expenses, some travel, and a little bit of food. Um, but then afterwards, yeah, you're on a wage. Now, some people listening to this would think I couldn't just have my travel expenses paid for two months. How do you, you know, even getting that foot in the door to get a paid version of that not brilliant job? So I, I couldn't have done it for any longer than I did. Yeah. Um, at six weeks, I was at the bottom of my bank account. Um, I was working in a pub evenings and weekends, which knowing Westminster closing hours is not easy to then rush to a pub afterwards, particularly if you're doing events around various leadership campaigns, which are on at the time. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've been working seven days a week for, for just shy of eight weeks. And then the problem with being paid expenses and arrears, wages and arrears, is that you have to carry on until that first paycheck comes in. It doesn't get much better. I took on a lot of interns. I made a ceiling of a maximum, I think, eight weeks when they could do it as an intern because I knew how expensive it was for them. But it had to be them approaching me because they really wanted to get a flavour of politics and an understanding of politics. But it also had to make sure that they could go on to something else afterwards. Mm. It was with another job in mind. It was with another expectation to go forward and do something else rather than to be sort of stuck necessarily in the Westminster bubble. And I think there's there's two really important things there. First of all, an internship should be a learning experience. There should be the chance to develop and pick up skills and, as you say, move on to that next career. And most of the time when you're in Parliament, that's not happening. You're just doing day-to-day -day tasks that you could do elsewhere and actually should probably be classified as a worker, not an intern. Uh, there's actually a private member's bill going through Parliament moment uh, sponsored by Lord Holmes and Alex Shelbrook to say, OK, let's put a ceiling on this and make it only four weeks, which is perfect because you do want those people to come in, experience Parliament, see if it's right for them. And you the don't fact want is they want completely. to do it as well. They yeah. really want to do it and they're, they're very ambitious um, mm. in politics but also for what they can do 
with the skills that they're going to learn and then the network that it can help them build because obviously where better to network than uh, the House of Commons with so many different types of people coming in and out of those doors of Portcullis House every day. But Isabel, we've seen in the last few weeks and months allegations of bullying and harassment within Parliament and quite often it's exactly the interns or researchers who are sort of on the receiving end of that. Yes, I think it's partly because, as Sam says, it's all these very bright young things who are in their first job or first work placement they've just left university they don't actually know what to expect from the world of work and I remember in the dim mists of time in my first job actually not knowing what was acceptable from my boss and I think you know as journalists you sort of expect to have things thrown at your head and that kind of thing and uh, that did <laughs> None of that goes just, on at the times obviously just, just to clarify that that didn't happen and my first boss was lovely but it you don't know and in Parliament, you don't actually have anywhere to turn either. There's not a, there's not an HR system. There's no system of appraisals. Your MPs operate basically as sort of small businesses. And so if you have a problem with your boss, or actually conversely, something some MPs said to me, if they had a problem with their researcher, like one MP who said their researcher had developed a crush on them and they just didn't know what to do about it, you haven't got anywhere to go to get advice. It's just you and your little unit. And you can see how, particularly given the research I've done into MPs' personal lives, how if you've got an MP who's very messed up or is not a very nice person and who enjoys the power and control Mm. that running a small office Mm. has, particularly when often backbenchers don't feel that powerful or or like they're in control, that an awful situation, a crisis will develop where someone is being bullied or harassed or worse than that and they don't feel they have anywhere to turn. One of the suggestions I've made in my book is for a very proactive HR system where everyone in Parliament gets appraisals from, I think it would have to be, I did suggest the Commons authorities, but they've got a long way to go as well, from some kind of independent body, independent of the parties, there's no kind of factional interests going on, where researchers are asked, are you happy with everything your boss is asking you to do? Is there anything you want to ask about? And MPs are similarly asked quite probing questions too. And I think we owe it to the people who've been bullied over the years to have that kind of probing culture. Because at the moment, I think people do feel really alone when they're being treated badly by their bosses. I I think there needs to be a separation between the MPs and the employment of the individual. I think at the moment MPs are actually the employer and responsible for everything to do with the individuals, that their researchers and secretaries and so forth. And that needs to stop in the, in the sense that MPs, yes, they should be able to be part of the interview and, and, and choosing who they want to work for them. But those people that do end up working should be managed and paid and, and uh, personnel issues should all be done by a separate independent body that they can go to get the support, help and everything else that they need. Which is what happens in any other business. Of course. You know, I, you know, if I'm a manager, I make a decision about who we hire or don't, yeah. but ultimately they're part of a bigger organisation and that, that and seems I, and to I make can sense. And te- I can tell you from personal experience, employing people is one of the hardest things you can ever do. I mean, I, I've done it in business and in, in politics and people are all very different, very different uh, personalities, concerns, problems and so forth and no individual can possibly look after all their needs. Exactly and you've got IPSA who manage the budgets so it's not hard to envisage them having a HR function as well mm. um, alongside that and it's it's important to remember that it's not just about the workers, you could quite conceivably offer training to MPs on how to manage and personal yeah. development there, it's just you're thrown into the job and being an MP as you know is 
all hours of every day where is the time for training and development and so what impact is this having then given that you know we want more people to want to come into politics if they do come into politics or to get a taste of working in Parliament, and they have a miserable time with a terrible MP being paid nothing more than their lunch. Do it, is that a point where we're already excluding some normal people from wanting to Yeah, I think it's, it's important to separate two issues. It's the hiring and then the management afterwards. Um, so the Sutton Trust had a report out on, on Friday that says that one third of um, people working in Parliament as researchers had previously or currently being unpaid. And that's a real barrier to social mobility to get in. And then afterwards, there's a lot to do to manage the mental health of the staff through the bullying and harassment and stuff like that so you don't have people I mean I left because I had depression I was sat in a corner office there was no recourse I had a terrible MP it's not something you want to be exposed to so there's A keeping people in parliament who enjoy the job but there's also expanding it so you get more diverse people applying for those jobs in the first place and part of that is even advertising the jobs not just being able to put them across to your friends family people you know in parliament having a much more transparent hiding process would make things a lot easier well, let's move on. In a sec, we'll talk about what happens when you do finally become an MP, maybe even a minister, and then suddenly find yourself running the country. Unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box podcast uh, with me, Matt Cholley, and this is Rob Wilson. The Westminster bubble is very real and pumped up to a point where it could burst. The Commons does not reflect working people's lives or concerns frequently enough. The gap between Parliament and people has grown too wide. In the public's view, it is self-serving rather than serving them, which is resulting in a movement to the extremes. Well, I suppose this is the bit where we might end up accidentally mentioning the B word, which we've managed to avoid uh, so far. We'll come on to uh, what this actually means to Brexit and the public's reaction to how that's all being handled at the moment. But just explain to your story. You became an MP in Reading. Yeah, in 2005, and I served until 2017, so 12 years. I became very much part of the the sort of you know, day-to-day life of Parliament, really. And for the last three years, I was a minister in the Cabinet Office and then at the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. So I had a pretty good run. 
2017 snap election changed everything because it was out of the blue. There was no time to prepare. I mean, I always made a point in previous elections of preparing because I was in a marginal seat. Uh, but this, this snap election, there was no time to do that. So, and somebody kept telling you she wasn't going to call one. Literally, I was coming into London on a train and I heard she was going to make an announcement on the steps of Downing Street. I thought, what the hell is that about? She can't be stepping down, can she? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, of course, it was a, a snap election. Of course, awful manifesto and everything went wrong. And I had a very Remain constituency with lots of students. It was a university town, and all that went against me so I, I hit the perfect storm and I was out of a job so you have to think how the hell do I rebuild my career and so the only thing I really knew was business because I was a businessman before I went into politics so I had to re in a sense recreate my former life. I remember I've interviewed Tony Blair about his time in number 10 and going in in 97 and then emerging in 2007 to find that mobile phones were a thing and you know writing an email with it you know, all that sort of stuff that you're sort of Parliament is so weird because it is all bits of paper and conversations and it's not in the real world. So well, did it feel like you, your life had been on hold in the real world for 12 years? I think the, the thing you notice about Parliament and about politics is the pace of it. It's much faster than normal life. So it's like everything's speeded up. So things can happen very quickly and, you know, your ups and downs are so much more pronounced in politics than they are in normal life. So suddenly you find you're from the fast lane into the slow lane and lots of things that other people do as a matter of course I mean I by the time I finished I had three people looking after my diary for example which is ridiculous really and so you're you're suddenly you're looking after yourself although that may may seem silly it's suddenly a very big adjustment to get used to and then there's all the, the catching up with technology that you haven't used because you know parliamentary systems are quite antiquated compared to the real world yeah so all that you're on catch up and you have to catch up very quickly to be relevant to the needs of what businesses need today mps aren't necessarily a massive a boost to a business so you have to you have to start so you have to start from the beginning again and what about that sort of having your life run by a diary and it's the funny hours and all of that what, what do you think is the point that you were making about the detachment between what's happening in politics and the way that normal people are viewing it what's behind why is that detached because actually there's an argument of saying most mps spend time doing constituency surgery they spend far more time speaking to a range of people than frankly sometimes journalist what is it that's the problem with that what's behind that detachment well i i I believe this goes back 20 years and i think politics changed um after 1997 when blair came in he had a massive majority previous to that i think most politicians had been part-timers and politics then became under blair in in those years a full-time profession where everybody was focused on you know their local seat, a bit like the Liberal Democrats had always done things, very locally focused and became more like super councillors rather than MPs who were doing evening work, legislation, which is a way, and were mainly, certainly in the Conservative Party, um, professionals who were doing some public service in addition to that. Instead of professionals doing it, what politics became was a 100% full-time job for the first time and that changed the way I think that MPs regarded their job started to interact with their constituents in a in a very different way and constituents wanted more of their time more of their effort and more wanted them to be more accountable and that was then 
added to by, of course, the uh, MPs' expensive scandal. And all this is built up whereby now you have professional political elite who are, I think, semi-detached from the real world. Is that what you found as well, Isabel? Yes, and it's interesting that um, that Rob mentions that the sort of post-Parliament employment prospects, because I, I used to speak to a lot of MPs in the last Parliament who'd say they'd, they'd be very angry that David Cameron hadn't promoted them or something, and they'd say, you know, I could be earning twice as much outside of Parliament. And I always thought, well, why don't you go off and earn twice as much? But I then spoke to MPs who'd lost their seats, actually to, I spoke to a headhunter who'd had MPs, um, particularly ex-Scottish Labour MPs, of which there were many, who came to him after 20 2015 who'd lost their seats and he said he found them so unimpressive that he found it very difficult to envisage them going into equivalent or being paid twice as much level jobs and uh, you can actually that sense of being separated from the real world that Rob describes it's really interesting because you can feel like you're very important because you're an MP but you're not actually doing anything you can sort of go to lots of receptions every day and put some early day motions down speak in a debate and you can look like you're serving your constituents well according to they work for you and all those other websites but you're not actually campaigning for anything you're not really developing any skills that are going to be useful in the outside world if you're an ex-minister that's a completely different matter because you've got experience of government and at that point companies start to get really interested if you're an ex-backbencher, your chances of earning what you're earning as an MP are quite slim, let alone going twice as much. And particularly if you consider you live in your constituency. So if you're earning £77,000 as, as an MP in Westminster, if you go back anywhere outside London in the South East, that's a lot of money. That's sort of what? decent teacher, yeah. head teacher levels. Yeah. You're not necessarily, just as a former MP, going to be of huge value to... Exactly. Somebody in. And we compare MPs to, when we look at MPs' pay, we talk about the equivalent pay for, say, head teachers, and that's much higher than, than for MPs. But head teachers have spent a long time building up their skills to get to that place, and they didn't start on that salary, did they? T- teaching starting salaries are much lower than for MPs. And, 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 yeah. and don't forget, when you come out of politics, there's quite a detailed record of everything you've done and said and embarrassing moments. I remember I, I interviewed Jackie Smith for a book about political scandals and she told me that she found it as a former Home Secretary and Chief Whip really difficult to find a well-paid job in the first period after she left Parliament and that really surprised me because I thought here was somebody with all that experience, with all that knowledge, with all those contacts yet it wasn't valuable to seemingly anybody And the reason I think, um, just trying to remember the details of the conversation, the reason I think it was difficult for her is because she went through a scandal was actually quite personal and quite difficult. This was the the porn being claimed on expenses, yeah. And, and, um, I mean, it was her husband, it wasn't her. Yeah. You know, there were, I'm sure, reasons for it. But the fact is, that that haunted her after she left for some time. When these days, if you put, you know, I'm sure if you put... Jackie Smith into Google, the first thing that would come up after her name is, is unlikely to be uh, the uh, legislation that she passed. And what's the first thing a potential employer yeah. of an ex-minister will do yeah. is they will Google them 
And this point in transparency is really interesting because the more transparency you have, it seems the more is demanded. And you look at one of the big things that MPs have increasingly had to do is respond to the volume of casework is just going through the roof at the moment. And lots of that is websites like 38 Degrees. Um, and you're getting these identical emails from uh, from constituents that they may not have even written themselves um, that say, please vote this way on bees. It was always bees or animals. It was never the big <laughs> well, stuff. Well, trees. Like, 38 Degrees were basically built on trees and yeah. opposed the cellar for the forest. Exactly, and puppy smuggling is always the one that came up, which I never knew was a problem. Um, but all those, then you have the constituents that demand an individual response, and if they get what they feel like is a tailored response, then you'll get criticised and you get called out on social media, and that increasing transparency is, is becoming a real problem for how you manage your work. So, so it, let's let's go back to the essay question then, and what what is wrong with politics, and why are people looking at Westminster now and thinking? God, they're all as bad as one another. Why can't they just sort this out? We thought we'd had this Brexit vote two years ago. Why is, it, why is everyone so crap in Westminster? There is a gradual diminishing of the quality of members of Parliament who are getting into the Commons, and that is because of many of the things we discussed earlier, the state of the parties, the way they select their candidates, the things candidates have to do to get elected. It's to do with social media. It's to do with how you are on a hiding to nothing if you become a politics. So it limits the pool of people coming in. It's also the patronage system within Westminster as well, because you really to get on most of the time have to be a whip's narc as I call them <laughs> to really get on in politics so this is if you want to get become a, a ministerial aide then become a junior minister then become a cabinet minister you have to just you toe e- the line you either do, do, do it, it that way or you are you have the patronage of somebody mm. higher up yeah. I mean in, in my day it was if you didn't have the patronage of George Osborne you were, you were finished and that's so pernicious for how parliament looks or doesn't look at legislation because the culture in parliament does not reward people who actually read bills it rewards people who vote as they're told by the whips even on bill committees where you're supposed to do line by line scrutiny of legislation. I mean, I found examples on bill committees where the government has refused amendments from the opposition which are correcting the spelling and grammar of a bill because they don't want to concede to the other party. And if you're in the governing party, you do get told as you go in, right, keep your head down and we'll get this over with as quickly as possible. So you're you're punished if you point out that there's, there's a major flaw in some legislation and rewarded if you just let it through. Absolutely. Yeah. And, or if you don't even notice that there's a problem, like, for instance, the under-occupancy penalty, better known as the bedroom tax that was introduced under the coalition government, lots of housing associations got letters from Conservative MPs saying, how dare you put up my constituent's rent? He's going to be made homeless. And the housing associations wrote back saying, no, you've cut my tenants housing benefit your party introduced it and you supported it and you've only just noticed it which is no way as to richard, do a parliament is as it? richard bergen said at the weekend the age of experts is over he would know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just finally one question would you consider going into or returning into politics as an mp well i'd certainly consider it yes absolutely not no danger <laughs> there we are, two, two to one. But it's all, the, the, the path is clear for you, Rob. Great. Well, I, I think Isabel and, and Sam would be very difficult opponents. So uh, <laughs> glad, I'm not. I'm Flattery. glad I'm not That's facing them. Money, Rob. Somebody no, not voting in Reading. West. Yeah, somebody yeah. doesn't want to do it is a much is a much better candidate than somebody who does. Right, before we go this week, a special plea. If you're listening to this on iTunes, do subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button and then you won't miss any future episodes. And the more of you who do that, the better. You can also subscribe to my morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from Sam Elvis, Isabel Hardman, Rob Wilson and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 